Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. three conflicts which define the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at the time. These three conflicts are also conflicts that we might find ourselves facing today, either very openly or deep within our subconscious. A few weeks ago, I discussed Matthew 9 and the story of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, coming to question Jesus in order to discredit him. We looked at how humanity as a whole, both in their time and now today, really struggles with change and how the message of Jesus, which would completely transform lives and society as a whole, faced huge resistance. This week we're in Matthew 15 and we're going to dive into the specifics of what it was that Jesus came to overturn, the assumptions that had begun to take place and begun to seep into society that had led them away from God. We're going to see how his lessons, his new lessons at this time, can help us leave behind tradition can help us understand our sin and can help us find true cleansing in him. In our home office, we have a fish tank and the tank has a convex um, piece of glass, a curved piece of glass um, at the front as you look at the fish. And that's really helpful because what it does is it magnifies the fish to make them look bigger and prettier. And it's a really good thing, it's a really helpful thing. But it's actually very unhelpful when you're trying to clean the tank because sometimes what you're looking at is slightly different to where the dirt actually is or where the rocks are that you need to clean. And the other week I spent quite a while trying to clean the back wall of the tank and didn't really get anywhere. And I realised that what had happened was that uh, the water and the glass had distorted my view of where the dirt was. I had to change my perspective and view the dirt from directly above in order to be able to clean it. And that's a similar situation that the Jewish society had found itself in at the time Jesus arrived. Tradition and ritual had distorted their view of God's commands. Our first conflict is the traditions of man versus the commands of God. Matthew 15 starts with the verses that are suggesting the opposition to Jesus is rising. The opposition is becoming more and more open, more and more clear. The verses say this. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. The text here is saying that these teachers of the law came all the way from Jerusalem. This means that the A-team have arrived. The most highly trained of the scribes and scholars have been sent to question Jesus. It's significant that they intended to send leaders all the way from Jerusalem, the capital, to the rural area of Galilee for a traveling rabbi. It shows that the senior leaders must have been becoming increasingly worried about the following that Jesus had attracted and the teachings that he was giving them. So what are the Pharisees doing here? What's the point of them coming? Well, the first thing they seem to do is make Jesus fully responsible for the actions of his disciples. They kind of point out that they're his disciples and that they're breaking tradition putting the blame upon him. They say that they don't even 
wash their hands before eating, something that even today we would find a bit gross. The Pharisees then don't make any effort to hide their displeasure, unlike in Matthew 9, which we looked at a few weeks ago, where the question seemed a bit guarded. They were kind of hiding their opposition to Jesus. Here, the question doesn't even veil the attack. It doesn't hide the negative view that they had of Jesus. They don't hide their own self-regard either. It says, why don't they follow the traditions of the elders? Well, these guys are the elders. They're the leaders, the teachers, the ones who have created these traditions. And Jesus here actually feels no need to answer that question. In fact, Jesus kind of immediately returns their contempt and he asks and then immediately answers a question of his own. It says, Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of tradition? For God said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, anyone that declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God. They are not to honour their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus here is saying, how dare you ask me why disciples don't follow your traditions. Those very traditions are keeping them from obeying the commands of God. They're keeping you and your followers from obeying the commands of God. Specifically, he points out that they're disobeying the fifth commandment, to honour your father and mother, something that had been given directly by God to Moses. We need to understand the context around this. Why has he picked the fifth commandment and that example to kind of point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? They asked a question about food. Jesus here is referring to a responsibility to look after aging parents as need arises. The commandment to honour one's mother and father is lived out by looking after them when they can no longer look after themselves. This is an idea that flows throughout the Bible. God through Isaiah says, when you see the naked, clothe them and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. When they need to repent of that, they need to take care of their family. First Timothy says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household, the close relatives, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There is a clear biblical call that they would have known to take care of their family. The Pharisees and teachers are experts in the law. They're the ones telling people about the commandments. So they knew and would have understood the fifth commandment. But it had become a burden for them. And so to avoid it, to get around it, they created a tradition of their own. Traditions were very important in Jewish society. Rabbis and teachers um, built upon the teachings of the Torah, the original five books of the Bible, by interpreting them and adding on top of them. And these words and languages that they added on top, interpretations, became as scripture to Jewish people. It gave the leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers an incredible authority over the ordinary believer. And the tradition that they created in regards to looking after parents um, revolves around the idea of Corban. That is C-O-R-B-A-N. And we know that Jesus is referring to this practice of Corban specifically, because in the Mark 7 account of this teaching, of this parable, he mentions it. Corban, 
it allowed you to set aside anything in your possession for God's use. So what this means is that if you declared something to be Corbyn, it was forbidden to use it for any other purpose. Um, I can put that in a modern perspective. Let's say you've got a good job and through that job, you're able to save money every month. And the eventual aim you have for that money is to buy yourself a car. Now, your mother or your father calls you up and says, hey, I've lost my job. And they ask you for help, um, knowing that you've got this cash available, knowing that you've been saving and you've put aside some money. Instead of giving it to them and helping them out, you can declare that cash to be Corbyn. Now it becomes unavailable. It's for God. In fact, it becomes morally wrong to use that cash to help your parents because you would be taking away money that has been set aside for God. Now, what's wrong with setting aside something for God? That's quite positive, it sounds. You know, you're not helping your parents, but it's for God. Well, the beauty of the rule that the Pharisees had created was that something doesn't have to remain Corbyn or set aside forever. Once your parents have found another job or found help in another way, you can simply declare it uncorbon and it comes back to you. You've lost nothing. The tradition very clearly wasn't created to serve God or to serve your family, but to serve the interests of the elders and leaders who created it, to allow them to get around the fifth commandment. Traditions that were meant to guard the word of God were now keeping people from following it. Jesus carries on. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The scribes and the teachers are simply using tradition that they have created to disobey God. The traditions that they've created have tricked and led astray ordinary people. By creating this tradition, Corbyn, they've created a situation where the most vulnerable members of society aren't helped by their families. And they've done it all in the name of God. And Jesus is furious. The thing is, God is not tricked. He knows exactly what he told his people, exactly what he taught them. And Jesus has come to tear down these very traditions and point them back to the commandments that God has given them. The traditions of man have come into conflict with the commands of God. And as we move on through the chapter, it's worth asking yourself, are you a bit like these Pharisees? Are you looking for any way to undermine God's commands? Or are you truly open to what God has to say? So that's conflict number one, traditions of men versus the commands of God. Conflict number two is the perceived defilement versus the reality of sin. And when I say defilement here, I mean the biblical word that's used, which really means uncleanness, dirtiness. And in the verses 10 and 11 in particular, Jesus starts by calling the people to himself. Um, why weren't they with him at this point? Well, it suggests that the people had maybe backed off when the Pharisees had arrived. Um, the Pharisees were very important leaders and given great respect and deference. And when they had come to question Jesus, it's very likely that the crowds of people had moved slightly further away. Verses 10 and 11 say this. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. He's saying what you eat doesn't defile you. He's kind of answering that original question. 
That's very helpful, but what does it mean and why does it matter? What is the context around food at that time? The Pharisees um, had a school of thought and a teaching that they taught to everyone that as you went through the day, you could become defiled or unclean. Um, and that could happen accidentally or on purpose. And a huge list of things had developed that could make you unclean. For example, if you met a tax collector in any way, you were unclean. Um, if you used utensils that hadn't been properly washed, you were unclean. If you ate pork or shellfish, um, for women, they were unclean on their periods. There were so many things that made people unclean that life became this endless tick list of things to avoid and then rituals to become clean again. And effectively, you could become unclean simply by eating something that was unclean or using a utensil that wasn't properly washed. But Jesus kind of refutes this. He doesn't agree with this at all. And in the Mark version of this parable, he answers um, in a way that's slightly differently explained. Um, and it says this, for it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomachs and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Amen, thank you, Jesus. But this is where the second conflict arises. For what Jesus is doing here to an entire nation is to flip their understanding of what it means to be clean and right before God. They have been taught that defilement, impurity, sickness, uncleanness is an outside to in issue. What you eat, what you touch, who you meet. And Jesus is saying, no, defilement is simply sin. And it's an inside to outside issue. Let me repeat that. Defilement isn't outside to in, but what is inside already coming out. Verses 12 says, and 13 says, then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Offense is an unpardonable sin in our society. Offending someone basically means that you're wrong. We believe in society, we often teach that if someone is offended, then it's the fault of the person doing the offending. But here's the thing, this very message, the very fact of Jesus dying upon a cross is offensive. The message that Jesus is teaching here, that defilement is not about what we touch or who we meet, but instead is already in our hearts as sin, is offensive. To properly understand and to properly teach the gospel, we have to appreciate that some people will be offended. The Pharisees were definitely offended. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus describes the Pharisees with an analogy. He says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be taken up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus is calling the Pharisees weeds. He's telling the disciples and all those that have gathered to listen that their leaders and teachers are fools. He's warning them that if they follow these guys, they're going to end up in a pit. Or to put it another way, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be planted, you're going to grow, and you're going to blossom. If you follow the Pharisees, you're going to be uprooted, you're going to be thrown away. It's offensive, but it's clear and it's a true message from Jesus. And yet one of the disciples finds himself continuing to question Peter asks, explain the parable to us. And Jesus immediately replies, are you still so dumb? In some versions it says, 
do you still lack understanding? There are often moments when we come to a difficult passage in the Bible and we might get a bit stuck. Our lack of understanding sometimes doesn't actually come from us finding the language or the words confusing. It instead comes from not really being willing to listen and heed the words that are there. So we move on. We say it's confusing when actually it's quite straightforward. Uh, let me repeat those verses and just expand a little bit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart came evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus could not be clearer. What defiles a person is not what we take in, but the sin that is already inside us. Sin is an inside-out issue. It's in our hearts. And that's something that is as true now as it was when he was speaking to the Pharisees. So how do we know that our hearts are defiled? Well, Jesus says that it's evidenced by what we do, what we say, and what we think. He, he gives us loads of examples, and there are so many more. What we do, murder, adultery, immorality, theft. What we say, lies, slander, false testimony. Even what we think, jealousy, lust, evil thought, anger, and so many more. But hey, 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 wait a minute. I'm not a murderer. Um, I don't steal. Um, I don't commit adultery. Surely we don't all come under this category. We do. Jesus does not ignore the fact that some people can seem to be good or even do good things. In Matthew 7, um, Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heaven in, uh, Father in heaven give you good gifts? He's saying that people can give great gifts, but they can still be evil at heart. You can do great things, but still be evil at heart. Um, a few years ago, there was a news story about a group of incredible seeming people who had been part of the relief efforts after a series of natural disasters in Haiti. Now, these were people who had worked for charities and devoted their lives to helping people in difficult and heartbreaking situations. They had done tremendous good, helping to save many lives, bringing food, water, electricity to regions that had lost it and people who were desperate. However, a few years later, it came to light that they had used some of the money meant for relief efforts to pay for parties and prostitutes. They had engaged in the sin of sexual immorality. Jesus knows that even those that do and appear to be good have sin within them. In theological terms, we call this total depravity or the knowledge that we are all sinful. Maybe you've said something in anger towards someone and then immediately apologised. Um, you might have said something along the lines of, that's not my heart, I didn't mean it, I'm sorry. It is your heart. Maybe you didn't mean those exact words, but in that moment you had the desire to hurt that person. Your motive wasn't honesty, it wasn't good, it wasn't building them up. It was a desire to win. Our thoughts, words and actions aren't birthed in a vacuum. They come out of us. You are what you think, say and do. Even if you do a really good job hiding it from others like the Pharisees did, where they wrap themselves in tradition and religion, God 
knows who we are. He sees our sin. And that's the second conflict that this passage has revealed. The perceived defilement that the Pharisees believed in versus the reality of sin that Jesus came to reveal to us. So conflict one was the traditions of men versus the commands of God. Conflict two was perceived defilement versus the reality of sin. And finally, conflict three is the appearance of cleaning versus true cleansing. And this is where we bring everything together. Um, in this passage, you might have felt that I've been incredibly tough on the Pharisees. In fact, I've probably been incredibly tough on kind of every human throughout history. And to be honest, for all the Pharisees' faults, I actually agree with them on two issues. I agree that we're defiled, sinful and unclean. And I agree that we need to and can be made clean. In fact, Jesus really here is teaching that our ability to be with God is at stake if you remain unclean. But he has a very different view of what this means and how it can be fixed than the Pharisees. In fact, he's really teaching that our sin is much worse than the Pharisees believed. He's revealing that the way that we're to be clean is very different to what they teach. And he shows that true cleaning is greater than what they offer. The Pharisees and their followers believed that when you were defiled, you needed to be cleaned. And they created a very specific process for that. They would take water and they would pour it over their hands. First, they would pour it down their arm and then they would flip over their hands and pour it the other way. And it was really important that the water hit the wrist and the water also had to be flowing. You couldn't just dip your hand in a bowl. It had to be poured over your hand. It was very ritualistic. And once they had done that, then they were considered clean again and they could eat without fear of being defiled. But they wouldn't have to just do it once. It was a process that they would complete between each course. Eat, wash, eat, wash, eat, wash. And to be honest, there's a problem with this. There's loads of problems with this. First of all, it's a process that is basically endless and takes up a lot of time. But the real problem with this is they're cleaning the entirely wrong thing. The second conflict we looked at showed us that the problem was our internal sin, not external defilement. The cleansing that they needed, the cleansing that we need today, must be an internal one, not an external one. There's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that they could do on the outside that will cleanse you inside. No matter how often, how ritualistic, how grand or bold our attempts to get clean are, an external clean will do nothing. We need to clean the inside, our souls, the very essence of who we are. Well, how do you do that? How do you even begin to cleanse a soul? What can clean away the stench of sin? Well, there's only one thing. One thing only can clean a soul. The blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. The blood of Jesus cleanses our soul. We know that. The New Testament is the story of that blood being made available to us today. The blood of Jesus does an incredible work in our souls. Let me read just some of what the Bible says about the blood of Jesus. Um, first Peter says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, redemption. John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son his son purifies us from all sin purification Ephesians said to him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace forgiveness Hebrews says and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood made holy and finally Revelation says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood there are so many examples and interpretations of what the blood of Jesus does for us it does so much we're ransomed by his blood we're cleansed by his blood we're sanctified by his blood we're given peace by the blood of Jesus we're brought near to God by his blood we're freed by the blood of Jesus nothing but the blood of Jesus what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of Jesus oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that can clean us, no ritual or tradition, just an acceptance of the work of Jesus upon the cross where his blood flowed. We're going to sing about that in a moment. And I know that blood can be a hard thing to sing about. It's easier to sing about joy, about freedom, about love. But these things flow from the blood of Jesus. If we don't talk about the blood of Jesus, then we remove the sacrifice of Jesus. If we remove the sacrifice of Jesus, then we remove the cross of Jesus. And if you remove the cross of Jesus, you remove Jesus altogether. And if you remove Jesus altogether, there's nothing left. Jesus died upon the cross because we as our people, as his people lost our way. We turned away from his commands and built our own traditions. Jesus died because we thought we were clean because of the rituals we completed, but he knew the state of our hearts. Jesus died upon the cross so his blood would flow and we could be cleansed once and for all. As we begin to sing, let's ask ourselves the question, do we want to be clean or just appear clean? And if you want to be clean, let's sing this song with great belief and triumph because the blood of Jesus is what cleans us. I'm going to pray. Lord, you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus down to earth to be a sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, let your blood flow over us, Lord, as we accept the promises that you have delivered to us. The promise of new life, the promise of sinlessness, the promise of knowing you. Lord, in your holy name. Amen.